Today's episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast is proud to be partnered with Anchor Podcasts. Anchor is the easiest way for anyone to make a podcast. If you have a latent idea that's just kind of lying around for a show you would like to record one day, I'm confident that anyone could use this platform to host, record, and distribute your podcast, turning your idea into a reality. Anchor puts everything you need to be successful all in one place. You can start a new recording right from your mobile device. They also have convenient creation tools that allow you to edit your audio files so they sound crisp and great. Anchor also distributes your podcast for you, letting listeners find your show almost everywhere, including Spotify, Anchor Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and several others. And best of all, it's free. There are no hosting fees or monthly subscriptions or minimum listener counts, just an easy-to-use platform to get your podcast out there at no cost to you. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God and meets us in our messy ministries. I'm, of course, your host, Brad Gray. I am the senior pastor of Stonington Baptist Church in Paxinos, Pennsylvania. I am so happy to be with you uh, today on another episode of this wonderful podcast that, that is coming into your ears right now. <laughs> I am so thankful for this uh, ministry outlet, and I'm thankful that it has brought me into connection with several people from around the world, uh, people uh, like we have on the show today, uh, none other than uh, author and speaker and uh, overall just awesome guy, Chad Bird. Uh, Chad is a teacher, a teaching fellow, you might say, and writer for uh, 1517, a great uh, conglomerate of predominantly Lutheran uh, ministers and teachers and writers and whatnot. And uh, Chad is just a wonderful thinker. And he possesses a, a very um, deep and profound knowledge of the scriptures, uh, especially uh, Old Testament theology. And I'm so thankful to be able to uh, know Chad uh, and to interact with Chad. And in this episode, we talk uh, a lot about the Old Testament, specifically as the Old Testament that appears in the New Testament, uh, specifically in the book of Hebrews. Uh, the book of Hebrews, uh, for me, is a formidable book uh, in that it contains some of the most intricate theological topics, I think, that are ever presented in the scriptures. And the writer of Hebrews does so in such an exemplary way. Uh, he brings to light how Jesus, uh, the author of the new covenant, has brought about a better covenant than the old one. And that's essentially the argument throughout what Chad actually describes as a sermon, the sermon of Hebrews uh, to these Hebrew believers. And uh, this was just a wonderful episode to talk um, with Chad uh, to get his expertise, get his insights and perspectives on this just wonderful book of the Bible, um, the book of Hebrews. And I'm thankful that he uh, made time for me, made time for uh, coming on the show, and uh, he's just a wonderful guy to have on the show, and so I'm really thankful for Chad. Uh, we talk about his book, his upcoming book that's releasing in November, I think it is, uh, Unveiling Mercy. So we talk about that, we talk about Hebrews. Uh, also, A Bird Hits My Window. Uh, I've left that in there just because I thought it was hilarious. Um, a bird, in the middle of recording uh, this podcast, a bird hits the window and it scares the mess out of me. Uh, and so just get ready. It's coming, I think, about halfway through. But I left it in there just because I thought it was funny. Uh, so uh, this is the one where I talk with Chad and a bird uh, scares me. Uh, so that's what this one will be remembered as. But I'm really thankful for Chad. We can talk about the Christ-centered voice of Hebrews. And I think you'll be really uh, benefited by this conversation. Uh, before we get there, let's uh, hear a word uh, from my partner, fresh roasted coffee. Do you like coffee? I know that you do, and that's why I want to tell you about fresh roasted coffee. Fresh Roasted is a locally owned and operated coffee house right here in central Pennsylvania that is committed to providing the highest quality coffee on earth. They do so by sourcing only the freshest coffee beans and by using the most eco-friendly roasting technology in the world. Fresh Roasted's USDA certified organic coffee beans ensure that your coffee is consistently regulated at each stage of the production process and completely free of GMOs and harmful synthetic substances. 
fresh roasted coffee, roast their beans per order with immediate packaging and shipping directly to your door, meaning that you get to experience fresh coffee at its peak drinkability. That's what I like. I was introduced to fresh roasted coffee soon after moving to central Pennsylvania, and I'm so happy I was because I think it's literally the best coffee out there. Their Blackbeard's Revenge blend is out of this world good. Whether you use a regular drip coffee maker or pour over or a French press, however you get your coffee fix, make it fresh roasted. Go to the link in the notes for this show and use the offer code GRACE10 at checkout. That's offer code GRACE10 at checkout to get a discount on your next order. Now for my discussion with Chad Bird. Well, it's uh, good to hear from you, Chad. It's been quite a while since we have done one of these together. It's um, actually I don't even remember when the last time <laughs> you jumped on here, but it's been uh, several several years. But it's uh, it's always good to hear your voice. How are you doing? Doing good, doing good. Yeah, it's uh, great to get back in, in contact with each other. Uh, I can't remember when we visited that first time, but yeah, it's been at least a couple of years ago. So good to uh, good to hear your voice and look forward to our our conversation today. Yes. And uh, so how are things in Texas and how have you kind of been handling this uh, really weird season of life with uh, the coronavirus going around? (laughs) Yeah, things are going well for us. Uh, My wife is uh, is out of work. Like, of course, a lot of people are right now, but uh, she's she's been taken care of. So we're we're glad about that. And I'm still working. I work full time for 1517 have been uh, since January 1st. So they've got me uh, staying busy or very busy at times We're you know, because people are at home and have more time on their hands for listening and watching uh, content. We have been trying to produce as much as possible at, at 1517 with videos and, and podcast as well as articles. And I'm currently working on a, a book for them. So I'm uh, hammering away at that uh, just about every day that will come out in probably November, late October, November. So I'm, uh, I'm working on that with them. So it's, it's been good. I mean, uh, it's of course been a, a change for us, but we're all healthy. So thank God for, thank God for that and, uh, have plenty, uh, to keep us, keep us occupied. Well, that's a good thing. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, I have noticed that you've been writing like a ton right now, which I always love. And, uh, yeah, can you just kind of, I don't know, advertise or just give a little commercial for your devotional? I know it's a, uh, a year, a year devotional, right? Uh, that's coming out in November. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. I, so I've, uh, oh, let's see. I, I don't even want to count the years because it's been a lot of years, but, uh, I, <laughs> just to, to kind of guess probably for, th- 25 to 30 years, I've uh, been in one way or another involved with the Hebrew language. Uh, I studied Hebrew in college. I studied it in depth in in seminary. And then through my various graduate studies, uh, working on my master's, I delved even more into Hebrew. And along the way, it just kind of became a, a love of mine to, to delve into the language of the Israelites. And what I've done in this book, what I'm doing in this book, is I'm I'm taking 365 Hebrew words or phrases, and I'm unpacking them biblically and theologically. So every devotion, which which are relatively brief, these aren't long devotions; these are pretty pretty short devotions. But each one of them will will take a Hebrew word or expression from the Old Testament and explain a little bit about what it means, give some examples, and then. More importantly, it connects it to the New Testament and to the work of Christ or to some facet of ministry. So it's a it's it's been a actually a, a great joy for me to do this. I've been putting out smaller devotions like this over the years, and it's really seemed to connect with people. They feel like it opens up the Old Testament to them. It shows them this kind of back and forth between the the two testaments, and it. I think more than anything else, it just reveals the the gospel nature of the Old Testament. So the the title of it is Unveiling Mercy, and the subtitle is uh, 365 Daily Devotionals Based on Insights from Old Testament Hebrew. And 1517, we'll put that out, like I say, in 
probably in, in November. So it's ready for people to, to purchase. And since it is a devotional, you know, folks will want that uh, at the beginning of the beginning of the year. Man, that's awesome. I have, I'll just testify to the fact that I've really enjoyed uh, whenever you write an article or a devotional somewhere uh, where you unpack the, the Hebrew language in a way that just makes it so crystallized what it means and how it foreshadows um, or typifies Christ in some way or another. And uh, for anyone listening or whatever, a good example of that would be um, a piece you wrote, I think around Easter, talking about um, Golgotha and the stone rolled away from the tomb. Um, I forget what the title of that piece is. I'll have to try and find it and link it in the notes for this episode. But that's a really good example, a uh, really good sort of uh, proof case for uh, the type of content I'm sure you're going to get out of this devotional, which I'm very excited to get my hands on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a, I mean, that was a favorite one. That that particular article uh, talked about the connection between Gilgal, which was kind of the base camp for the Israelites when they were about to uh, to start taking over the promised land. And Gilgal is related to the verb galal, which means to roll. And some of the things you roll are are stones. So the verb is actually used for like rolling a stone in front of a cave. But it's also connected to anything round, like a skull. So Golgotha, which of course means skull, it's an Aramaic word, but it's it's related to the Hebrew word for skull. So I mean, there's all sorts of kind of interconnections there. So <laughs> he's crucified on Golgotha, the place of the skull, where he rolls away our reproach. But he's also, of course, in a tomb. And when the stone is galled away, when it's rolled away, then uh, it reveals that he indeed was triumphant over death. So... I mean, that's one example of just uh, really an innumerable list of examples of how you have this this very intricate and deep kind of web-like connections hmm. between everything from Genesis to Revelation. Hmm. Amen. It's it's so um me I'm always moved when I hear stories or read pieces like this just because um I I'll testify and confess to the fact that sometimes we can get so like almost anecdotal with how we treat the scriptures and we treat them as just a little series of stories that don't have much uh, connective tissue. And I think that pieces like that or just observations, studies on the word meditations like that uh, really emphasize the fact that this story is one story and every single book is connected deeply uh, to the work of redemption that that God is going to tell throughout all history. And uh, I think that's just a wonderful example of that truth kind of coming to light, so to speak. Yeah, I think the more that we are able to see those kind of connections, the more that we're able to understand this deep and underlying thematic, well, we would say divine unity that's there. Of course, we have all these human authors, which are involved in the writing of the letters and the books and the gospels, but behind them all is the, the hand of the divine author. And he, throughout these various books, is making these connections between them so that you really do see the, the grand story when, when, you're, when you're finished. I think it's more or less what Jesus did with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus is he he showed them as it were, they, they, it's like they were carrying, both were carrying uh, this box of puzzle pieces and they didn't quite see how it all fit together. And then Jesus walks up and he shows them the top of the cover. He shows them com the completed picture and he starts demonstrating how all these pieces fit together. And that's why, as it says, their hearts were burning within them in a, in a very good sort of way. Their, their hearts were on fire because of the word. And, and I can guarantee you that after that particular day, they never read the scriptures the same because now they were able to see what uh, what had been there all along. But without the work of the Spirit and without the, the the full picture of Christ, the completed work, they were unable to grasp exactly how everything how everything went together. So, my prayer is that Unveiling Mercy, my book, will will lend itself toward understanding that big picture. Enable people yes, to yes. put those put those parts all together. Yes, uh, I know, and I pray that it will. And I'm very very thankful for uh, your writing ministry, and I'm looking forward to uh, to enjoying uh, a year with uh, a year with you as we walk through the scriptures in that way. <laughs> um, 
The reason why I wanted you on today, uh, because, well, I just finished some classes for seminary, uh, and one of the, um, it, it was more of like a, just a survey class. And in it, we, of course, went through some of the latter books of the New Testament. And one of the ones which always stands out to me, and one which, um, as a pastor, I have been promising my folks that one day, one of these days, I'm going to preach through, which is the book of Hebrews. And uh, Hebrews, I think, is, well, rightly so, in some cases, an ominous book, just because it's so robust and it talks about so so much uh, rich theology and important theology, I would say. Uh, But you've spent a great deal of time kind of working through the book of Hebrews in various contexts and and in various ways. Um, What do you, would you say is the legacy of the book of Hebrews, if I can use that term, but also what is something that is misunderstood or misconceived when uh, usually the book of Hebrews comes up? Yeah, I I like to refer to Hebrews as the the best and the cheapest commentary you can buy on the uh, on the uh, the Old Testament. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> yeah, I would is uh, as far as just in a uh, in condensed form, it really is the the best the best interpretive guide that we have to to the Old Testament, and it's completely free right there right there in your Bible already. <laughs> and I think that's one of the reasons for which, for which it was written, which we can we can get into if you want to. But I, you know, most scholars who uh, sp- who study the Book of Hebrews suspect that it was written primarily because the audience was was at a crossroads, if 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 you will, I and mean, they were they were believers in the Messiah. Uh, they were probably almost exclusively Jews, judging by the content of the book. And they were kind of caught between their old life in the synagogue and everything that defined them as as a Jew. And now what it meant to be a follower of the anointed one, a follower of the Messiah. And we have indications in the book, of course, that they had faced some persecutions, uh, perhaps some imprisonments, confiscation of property, things such as that. So some heat was being brought upon them. And no doubt because of that, there was a, a, a tendency, a temptation on the part of some to maybe to move away from the faith. And so one of the purposes of the book is to demonstrate, well, not I wouldn't say even one of the purposes, the, the, the overarching purpose of the book is to demonstrate that in Christ, everything that we now have as followers of the Messiah is better than what Israel had of old. That is the the overarching thrust of the book, that Christ has brought everything to to its telos, to its end, to to its perfection. In fact, that's one of the the root Greek words that occurs over and over in the book is Christ has engaged in teleo. He has fulfilled, completed, perfected that which came before. So you have all of these parallels, all of these uh, rather these comparisons that take place between the work of Christ and the work of angels or the work of the political priests or the person and work of Moses or the old tabernacle and the heavenly tabernacle or whatever it might be. There's a whole laundry list of these comparisons and contrasts that the author makes in order that he might demonstrate to his audience that in Christ, all of God's promises are yes, to use Paul's language, that everything, yeah. everything beforehand that has been either said or acted out or stood as an institution in Israel has now been brought to its God created telos, its end in, in, uh, in the Messiah. So I mean, it, it, it's like the tetelestai, right? It has been finished. It has been teleod. It has been brought to its, uh, to its conclusion in him. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a, I think a, a good place to start with, with the book. Uh, I will say that, it's often referred to as the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, I think that's a, gen- a genre mistake. I believe it is. It's a it's a sermon is is really what it is. It's probably the. I know we have the Sermon on the Mount, but as far as just a complete book in the New Testament that is homiletical in nature, that is that falls within the genre of a sermon. I, I believe that that Hebrews is probably the only entire book that fits within that particular kind of literary category. This was a, a sermon that is meant to be addressed to a congregation or or maybe multiple congregations of people who are still 
kind of fresh out of the the old ways of, of Judaism and now are trying to, I guess, in an ongoing sort of way, transition into what it now means for all of this to be fulfilled and for the work of Christ to have its full impact in their in their lives. Mm, that's so good. I think I'm stealing from you when I say that Hebrews is the most Old Testament book of the New Testament, which is kind of what you were saying in terms of it being like a commentary on a lot of those things that you find in the Pentateuch, which, by the way, um, you know this, of course, but uh, for some out there who might be listening, um, which is why we can't just throw away or do away with the Old Testament, because if you do that, <laughs> you jettison the entire way in which you can understand what the preacher in Hebrews is doing uh, throughout his sermon, so to speak, right? Yeah, I mean, I, and, and I would expand that out to the entirety of the New Testament. Uh, yeah. it, it, it's most explicit, of course, in the book of Hebrews, because, and I, and I think that's probably one of the reasons that, that, he, that this particular sermon is, is a challenge to people, because you really have to, you have to approach it from the perspective of an Old Testament Israelite. You have to put on your Old Testament ears if you really want to understand what Hebrews is about. I guarantee you, if I were to to sit a person down who knows zero about the Old Testament, or, you know, maybe they know about the story of the flood or something about David and Goliath, whatever it is, but they really don't know the story and ask them to read it, they would understand maybe 2% of what the book was, was, was about, because it is just one of those where you have to place yourself within the Old Testament mindset in order to grasp what is what is being communicated. And I would argue, as, as, I, as, I, as I almost do incessantly in, in all of my, uh, my lectures and, and, and podcasts and videos, that, that it's really impossible to get the full import of the New Testament unless, we, unless we're looking at it with Old Testament eyes. Uh, this, this, we have to we have to always bear in mind that the New Testament was written by Jews and that Jesus was a Jew and that all, virtually all of the earliest followers of the Messiah were Jews. So unless we are approaching these writings, these Jewish writings that are incorporated into the New Testament, unless we're approaching them from a for lack of a better term, a Jewish perspective, or what I would call an Israelite Old Testament perspective, then yeah, we're going to learn a few things, but we're we're not going to we may learn the truth, but we're certainly not going to learn the whole truth. We're only going to learn the whole truth when we are steeped in the imagery and the language and the promises of of the Old Covenant, because this is what the writers in the New Testament were steeped in. That's what Jesus himself was steeped in. So as I like to say, the Bible that Jesus read is a much shorter Bible than we read, than we read. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it was the same for, you know, for quite a while in in, in the life of the early church. Uh, and when Jesus was resurrected and ascended and his, his uh, followers began to gather together, they didn't open up the New Testament and read it every Sunday. They didn't have a New Testament. What they were preaching on, what they were teaching from, what they were uh, living their lives according to was, well, they called it the Bible, the Tanakh, the scriptures. Uh, we, we call it the Old Testament. So for us to, to return to that, to understand exactly what it entails, to immerse ourselves in those stories and the language and promises is, well, it's going to benefit us in, in untold ways, just because in and of itself, it's beautiful, it's full of gospel, but it also is going to, be the door through which we can enter into the New Testament with with fresh eyes and ears that are open to hear what's truly there. Yeah. And I think that goes to, you know, another kind of trope is we can sometimes just think of the stories, particularly in the Gospels, um, just in, you know, like the flannel graph type of way. If you know, people out there know what I mean. <laughs> if you grew up in a in a Baptist church or any church, perhaps uh, you're familiar with a flannel graph lesson of <laughs> of the scriptures, and that often doesn't include or leave uh, space 
for like you were talking about this Old Testament perspective, which just lends itself to such a fuller, more vivid picture of what Jesus is doing when he says a thing that really catches off off guard and and uh, doesn't feel like something that Jesus Jesus should say or or what we would expect him to say, and and it's when you kind of put yourself in in first century sandals, so to speak, is that's when you kind of get the gist of, of, of where he's going and what he's doing and what he's saying, which is uh, so important uh, for anyone who's studying the scriptures. Yeah. And that's kind of the way that the book of Hebrews starts out, you know, it's, it, uh, it starts by talking about how God spoke to his people of old by, you know, all these, all these prophets uh, and, and, and there's there's not a but here. Like God spoke to his people about the prophets, but now uh, he's speaking in a new way. There's a continuation here, right? So God spoke to our fathers of old by the prophets in, in you know, lots of different ways, various and sundry ways. And in these last days, he's spoken to us by his by his son. But it's not as if once he's spoken to us in his son, we no longer listen to the prophets. All of the prophets were prophesying of the days of the Messiah. They were pre. They were. They were even curious themselves uh, about exactly what it was that was going to happen. Uh, Moses wrote about Christ, and David sang about Christ, and many of the prophets met Christ because he appeared to them as the the messenger of Yahweh, or he appeared to them as he did to Joshua as the commander of the the armies of the Lord, or he appears as the Devar Adonai, the the word of the Lord to young Samuel there at the at the tabernacle in Shiloh, he appears to Jeremiah and touches his lips. So the Son of God was there throughout the Old Testament. He was meeting the prophets, talking to the prophets, and all of these were preparing, as it were, a verbal pathway down which the Messiah would walk when he came in order to announce that all of these promises of the prophets are now fulfilled in him. And then, of course, he speaks. It's his voice that we hear, and his voice isn't just a solo voice. It's a voice that is in concert with all of the prophetic voices that came before him. Hmm. Amen. That's just the wonderful thing you can realize when you when you are made to understand all of these pre-incarnate appearances of of Christ that appear throughout the Old Testament, um, you can really get a sense of what God is doing. The other thing I was going to comment on is just the fact that um, you, you were making the case that that what the writer in Hebrews is doing, or the preacher, I should say, I guess, is proving in a lot of different scenarios just the ways that Jesus is better and superior um, to some of the old ways. And I think that that brings in this kind of new paradigm, so to speak, in which, or I'll, I'll start here. I think there's this common misconception or fallacy, I would say, that, you know, from a 21st century person to think and imagine and understand the scriptures in a way which we think that we would be better if we were in Old Testament times or New Testament times in certain cases where we could see these miracles happening in front of our eyes and be in close proximity to Jesus or the prophets uh, in many cases. And I think there's this idea that they had it better, so to speak. And I think one of the, one of the, the outcomes of Hebrews is just showing us, uh, us in the 21st century, <laughs> that we actually have it uh, a little bit better than they did, because again, like you were saying, uh, we have the full revelation. We have the, as you said, the full Tanakh <laughs> revelation of of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I think that's kind of kind of what he is he's proving throughout this sermon. Uh, correct? Yeah, I, I, that's a that's a great way to put it. I mean, all you have to really do is pay attention to the lives of the disciples and how much they miss to understand that being there was not necessarily advantageous. Because, of course, nobody really gets it. Nobody understands it until after the resurrection. You Again, to return to the two Emmaus disciples, I, I, I love what, what one of them says to Jesus when he walks up. You know, they're, uh, they're conversing and uh, he says, you know, what are you talking about? And they say, you know, you're the only, bot, only guy who, who doesn't know what's happened here. 
And I love Jesus' reply. He's like, yeah. what things? You know, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, but anyway, what is going to get to is one of the disciples say, you know, that we, he, he describes Jesus and they had, they, had, they had hoped that he was the Messiah. And then he says, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. Mm, yeah. So yeah. missing, not just like a minor point, but missing the whole message that, in fact, this, what happened to him was the very means by which he did redeem Israel. And these these disciples weren't just on the periphery. I mean, they were the followers of our Lord. So being there in some ways was disadvantageous because they just weren't able to understand exactly what was going on. And we, who of course were not there, but have all of these testimonies to what happened, we are uh, we're blessed because we're able to understand in in all of its fullness the the work of God, not just in the ministry of Jesus, but from the creation of the world until the the eschaton. We have all of that, that we have this whole ov- overarching grand narrative of salvation laid out before us. And it's just a matter of us baptizing ourselves into that, to just pl- diving in, as it were, and soaking in this sacred story so that we can understand how all of it fits together and proclaims the message of Christ. Yes. Yes. And um, sort of turning our attention to Hebrew specifically, there's a few passages that I was kind of thinking about just wanting to investigate, passages that I wouldn't necessarily describe as troublesome or problematic, but they are curious. And uh, one of the ones I wanted to just uh, get your thoughts on was at the beginning of Hebrews, uh, especially what the the preacher does in chapters 1 and 2, because if you read... Wow, sorry, a bird just hit my window and scared the crap out of me. <laughs> I, I um, heard, I heard, <laughs> poor bird, I heard it hit. I didn't know what it was, though. Yeah, I recognize that gosh, now he, that you said that, I recognize the the sound. The same thing happens <laughs> in our windows, too. Uh, I might have to leave that in this. Um, it scared <laughs> me to death. Oh, he left some feathers on the glass, too. Um, anyways. Holy Spirit trying to get in. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) that's what's happening. Um, So, anyways, back to Hebrews, though. Um, If you read Hebrews 1 and 2, uh, the the preacher there makes this interesting comparison, where in chapter 1, he makes this assertion um, at the beginning, I think it's in verse uh, 4, where he talks about how Jesus is now superior to angels. And then when you keep going through, he highlights all these different Old Testament references. And then you go to chapter 2, though, and he makes this curious assertion that, uh, quoting actually from Psalm 8, he says in verse 7, where he talks about that Jesus was made lower than the angels. And so you have this really interesting sort of dichotomy where Jesus is superior yet lower at the same time. And I just want... What do you think the preacher is doing in this scenario? Like, why why do you think he's making this assertion that Jesus is better than angels? Why why do you think that was necessary? I suspect it has to do with Paul alludes to this in uh, uh, is it Colossians? Anyway, one of his epistles about not engaging in the worship of angels. Uh, I, we know from we know, for instance, from the Qumran scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, that uh, angels were quite fascinating to a lot of first century Jews. They were understood in, in some of the, the Psalms that are, that are recorded in the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls to have been participants in worship. And I, 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 I suspect what was happening is that sometimes they were accorded uh, a greater status than, than they deserved in the sense that they were as, as just same thing that happens today. Sometimes people become, more fascinated in angels and in talking to angels and praying to angels than they are in God himself. Uh, this is a, this is an ongoing problem for humanity. I, I think what it is, is we have this sense in which, well, God is so great and so high above us and so mighty. And, you know, he's out there busily taking care of the universe. There's no way he can really be concerned about us uh, down here on earth, but we have these intermediaries, you know, we have, in some traditions, it's the saints, and in some traditions, it's angels. We have these intermediaries who can, as it were, kind of bridge the gap uh, between us, lowly humans, and the the big, almighty, 
way out there God. And I, I, so I think that's probably part of what is going on here with uh, this interest in demonstrating the superiority of the son of God to the, to the angels is that you have, you have a temptation among the, the audience to become mesmerized by the, the presence of angels in worship and, directing at least some adoration to them instead of instead of to Christ. And so what he wants to do right away is demonstrate that yes, angels are are fantastic creatures of God. They're 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 magnificent, but uh, they are not superior to the sun. In fact, uh I would argue they're they're not superior to to humans. I wrote about this recently, uh an article for 1517 that actually angels are our ministers. That's what it says in in chapter one, that they were created by God to be be the ministers who are serving us. Uh, They are the Greek word there is for for service is the word from which we get liturgy, which is the word used in some context for for worship means service. So their service, their their worshipful service to God is in ministering to people. Now, getting back to to your original question was Psalm eight. Yeah. Psalm eight is a, is a, is a fascinating Psalm for, for a couple of different reasons. Uh, one is if you look at it in, it in its original context, it is David's way of talking about the, the gift that God has given to humanity. You know, that when we look at the heavens, when we look at just this vast universe around us, you know, who am I, that the Lord is mindful of me. Uh, but what happens in Hebrews is that the psalm is taken and applied not to just humanity kind of in general, but instead to the son of man himself. So it becomes his voice that is speaking in Psalm 8. Now, here's the beautiful thing. It's not only his voice, but because we are now the body of Christ, baptized into him, part of his very body, as Paul talks about in Corinthians, Whatever is given to Christ is given also to us. What is given to the head belongs also to the body. So his superiority, his his uh, exaltation to the Father's right hand is something which we, as those who share his humanity and as he who shares our humanity with us, we now partake in the glory that is his. So it's a, I, I say this because I, it, I think it's important to always emphasize this because sometimes this kind of slips by uh, Christians. They get a little bit confused about this, but don't imagine that the humanity of Jesus was something he just kind of took off as we might take off clothing at his ascension. He did not uh, shed his humanity like a snake sheds its skin when he ascended to the father's right hand. His humanity was not some sort of, you know, temporary salvation project. And then when he was done with it, he put it aside from the moment of his conception of Mary's womb through the rest of eternity, Christ is both God and man. And so we can rightly say that there is a man who sits at the father's right hand. He's God, of course, but he's also fully man. So everything that belongs to this man Christ, to this God-man Christ, belongs also to us because he shares our very humanity. He is bound to us in that intimate nature sort of way, that essence sort of way, so that what is what is given to him is given also to us. And that is that takes us right back to Hebrews 1 and 2 to show us that everything that has been given to this to this son has been given also to those who share in his flesh and blood, that just as he partook of our humanity, so we partake of the glory that is his as the as the God-man. Yes, and that's where we get to those wonderful verses, which I'm just going to read. Uh, this is Hebrews 2, verse 9, where it talks, But we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, which I just love that phrase of Jesus tasting death in his human body, this body that was also uh, God in the flesh, like you were saying. And I think what is so wonderful when you see these two chapters, uh, right as this preacher is getting out of the gate, he's, he's 
dispelling any notion that we have to be dissatisfied, so to speak, with the person of Jesus, which I think is goes back to what you were talking about with with this fascination with angels and the supernatural. We we want something to be a little bit, you know, mysterious and, and special and and supernatural and, and, and mysticals almost. And there's almost I think this dissatisfaction with the fact that Jesus is God, yes, but he's flesh too, because we want it to be something more, I guess, so to speak. And I think that that's exactly what he's he's doing when he is asserting the fact that Jesus is so much more than what you can ever hope to imagine, which also makes me think of that verse in First Peter, where it talks about how the angels are even longing to look into into this mystery, this mystery of 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 God uh, coming down and in, 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 into the realm of of humans. I think it was Eugene Peterson who said that we are always trying to be more spiritual than God. Uh, think of that. Think of that often in in context uh, such as our conversation, where yeah, you have people who want, as you say, something mystical, and to think of God having a human body, you know, with with toenails and a heart and hair, it's just not. It doesn't doesn't seem quite spiritual. It doesn't seem quite mystical enough. Uh, but this is the way that God chooses to reveal Himself to us as a as a human being, someone who eats and drinks just as just as we eat and drink, someone who slept just as, just as we sleep. There is a, there's always been, I guess, and, and I suppose uh, until the second coming of Christ will always be this temptation for Christians to engage in the ancient heresy of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was uh, pretty prevalent beginning, especially in the second century onward, and we still see its manifestations today, more or less where you have this, Gnosticism comes from Gnosis, which means knowledge. Gnostics thought they had some sort of like secret esoteric knowledge and uh, this was their salvation there's a it's it's very complicated theological system which i won't get into but one of the the, the main error or one of the main errors uh, that they held to was that creation and everything about creation is the work of a a lower inferior divinity and so they they discounted things such as flesh and blood and humanity and so they were they thought they were super spiritual by kind of disregarding the stuff of the world or human nature. And so they were always trying to, as it were, escape inside themselves. And they were eager to just, you know, get rid of this nasty, gross uh, material body for the purity of the soul. Well, you still hear a language like that among some Christians, uh, unfortunately. And that's nothing more than Gnosticism, the stink of Gnosticism that, that's still around. Um so to 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 focus upon the the materiality that God chooses, the humanity that He assumes, is the biblical way, uh, and I think we need to accent that uh, as just as much as possible. That the incarnation, God taking on our our human nature, this is the way that God works. So in in, in the biblical mind, spiritual and physical are not in opposition. But rather, when God is spiritual, he's acting in physical ways. And the physical is undergirded by the spiritual. So for God to do a spiritual thing is for him to engage in some sort of activity using materiality. So these are not opposing forces in the biblical mindset. Rather, they are two ways of seeing the same divine action. Hmm. And that's so good. And you can see it uh, also, too, just jumping down a few more verses in Hebrews 2, where the preacher says, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, uh, these meaning flesh and blood, which is so uh, incredible to think of, as you were talking about, that from conception till forever, that Jesus has shared in flesh and blood, and that He has shared in what we share this this flesh and blood that is that is succumbing to death, and that that's just this incredible mystery that we are called to look into and called to champion. I think that's the mystery that Paul talks about in First Timothy three, where he's talking about the mystery of Christ that the church upholds, and uh, it is wonderful to think of, and it's also just humiliating to think of of this fact that Jesus took this on his own self for for us it, it's it's 
I don't know. It's just mind blowing when I think about it. <laughs> yeah, the 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 Greek word there for being sharers in our flesh and blood. Uh, it's it's a word from which we get uh, koinonia, this idea of communion or or, or fellowship, uh, a a full participation in a thing. So for him to share in our flesh and blood was him to have communion with our flesh and blood to to koinoneo himself into our flesh and blood. So to fully partake in this thing, so that. What is his, what is ours is his, and what is his is is ours. Well, and to transition a little bit, but on the same idea, there's this, um, I don't know, there's a school of thought, if you want to call it that, that would want to posture that the, the, the idea that, it, that, quote, it's all about Jesus is a little bit of a, of a reduction of what Christianity means. And then I would say, if you read Hebrews 5, or at least the beginning of it, and Hebrews 6, uh, especially the first couple of verses, it almost feels as if the writer is making that same point where he talks about milk and meat in Hebrews 5. And then in, in Hebrews 6, he even makes this incredible, incredibly curious statement about leaving the elementary teaching behind. Um, this elementary teaching about Christ, I think, is what the phrase is. Actually, let me read that verse so I don't just screw everything up. This is Hebrews six chapter or Hebrews chapter six verse one. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, and he goes on to uh, expand there a little bit. But it, it's a fascinating. Uh, really interesting to me to see how many people have used these as launching pads into saying that it's not all about Jesus and that there's something else, which I think kind of goes into what you were talking about with Gnosticism, that there's something else, something extra, something added uh, that's necessary to have this full understanding of what faith means. But uh, can you kind of talk about what the preacher is doing here and certainly about <laughs> why Jesus is so central and that we shouldn't um, even, uh, as it says here, leave teaching about Jesus behind. And I don't even think that's what he's talking about, but <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think the author explains himself in, uh, in that first verse that you read in Hebrews six, verse one, he's not talking about uh, leaving behind in the sense of you're done with that. It's no longer necessary any more than the builder of how a house leaves behind his foundation when he begins to, build the walls, and then eventually to construct the roof. That's the language uses, right? He says, therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about Christ to let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of all these various teachings. So just as a house, just as you don't, when you lay the foundation of a house, you go on to construct other things, right? You don't build another foundation. That would be ridiculous. So what he's saying here is, listen, we have, we have built a foundation, now let's go on to build the walls and let's build the roof. In other words, let's grow up into the full spiritual maturity that God desires us to have. He's not saying that we leave it behind in the sense that it's no longer necessary any more than you would leave behind the foundation of a house. Your house is going to crumble if you don't have that foundation here. And all these various teachings that he's talking about where he, he mentions repentance, he mentions faith and washings and laying on of hands and so forth. All of these are just various facets of, of the one Christ, right? When we're talking about repentance, we're talking about repentance that brings us to Christ. When we're talking about faith, we're talking about faith in Christ. When we're talking about washings, probably as a Jew, he's talking about various kinds of ritual washings or perhaps even baptism here. He's talking about that in connection with our purity before Christ. Same with all of the other resurrection, judgment, so on and so forth. These are nothing more than various facets on the one diamond, that one diamond being Christ. So, of course, there's, you know, there's just a multitude of various ways that we talk about Jesus. We can talk about him from uh, all of his various titles, you know, everything that we draw from the Old Testament, whether it's the messenger, word, glory, or we can talk about him from the perspective of the New Testament, where he's our, our shepherd, where he's our guide. Uh, the New, Tes New Testament even calls him an apostle in the sense that he is one sent by the Father. He's a king. So we're not saying that... Uh, that he's he's more we're simply saying he's one and these are all different ways of describing this one christ and 
That's what all of our various teachings do. I mean, if there's if there's a teaching in the Christian church that doesn't concern Christ, it does not need to be in the Christian church. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. I mean, all of our it doesn't matter what we're teaching about, uh, whether we're teaching about the Lord's Supper. Maybe we're teaching about baptism. Maybe we're teaching about repentance. Maybe we're teaching about tithing. Maybe we're teaching about worship. It doesn't matter. There's there's no doctrine which is which is not in some way teaching us about the person and work of Christ. So if if we are going to talk about pick a subject, any subject, then it needs to be directly tied to the gospel, to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because if we're not talking about if we're not talking about whatever this teaching might be from that perspective then what are we doing there, right? We could talk about that same thing in just a, a club or a get-together of some sort, you know, some a social gathering. This is the church, and so everything that, everything that we teach is, is, a, is a drawing out of the teaching about Jesus Christ. Yes, uh, that is, <laughs> to kind of bring it full circle with what you were talking about at the beginning, and the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, which, by the way, to bring it full circle with our last show we did many years ago, uh, we talked. you talked about this idea of the Emmaus perspective of scriptures. I don't know why that just came back to my head, but um, which I love. And it, it, to me, it just keeps everything so centered around the fact that all of this it is it, derived out of this one foundation, Christ, and it keeps you really centered and, and rooted and grounded, as to use Paul's lingo, um, and the fact that all of it is pointing back to and, and emanating out of the person and work of Christ, who, as we've already said and established, he is better than all these other ways that you can get to, you know, quote, faith or, or hope or peace or prosperity or anything. He's better than any of those other means by which that happens. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he is uh, he is the the superior priest. He's the superior tabernacle. He's the superior messenger of the Father. Uh, whatever Old Testament category you want to choose, he is the the superior one who fulfills all of those for us. Amen. The other other curious chapter, which. Um, I think anyone who has a colloquial understanding of Hebrews will uh, likely think of this chapter, which is the uh, Hall of Faith chapter, which I hate that title, but uh, Hebrews 11, which lists all these various, you know, patriarchs and characters and figures throughout scriptures that in some way or another exemplified faith. And it's just such a fascinating list of well, characters, definitely characters that we, many that we wouldn't expect to even be there are listed. Uh, I think of Ahab and I think of, um, well, there's several others, but uh, not Ahab, Rahab, excuse me. Uh, she's the one that comes to mind. The fact that she's mentioned in this long list, laundry list, so to speak, of exemplary characters, so to speak, of from which we can derive many lessons out of, at least in some people's minds. Uh, what What is... In your mind, again, not just saying that it's about Jesus, but what's what's in your mind the best way to understand what Hebrew, what the the preacher of Hebrews is doing through this chapter of of reminding us of of the faith of all these uh, all these patriarchs? I think you have to back up a little bit to understand exactly why he approaches it in the way that he does. So uh, this is one of those situations where our modern verse and chapter divisions don't really do us much good. So if you look at the close of chapter 10, he quotes uh, from the book of Habakkuk, yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then he goes on, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So he's setting everything up for what he's about to say. That's the context of, of chapter 11. So the context, once more, is the Old Testament where Habakkuk talks about living, living by faith. So what does he mean to live by faith? Well, that's what he begins to describe to us. And of course, at the beginning, he gives us, a, I guess which we could call a definition, one description anyway of faith. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not, not seen. So you, you hope for what you do not see. You, you wait 
for that which is not before your eyes. And of course, that's one of the elements of faith that he especially brings out when he talks about Abraham, who's not knowing where he's going. You know, he's looking for this city that has foundations, but he can't see it yet. He welcomes them from a, from a distance. Uh, a lot of people really, I don't quite get it because <laughs> it's like, it's so obvious because this chapter does not say by works, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice. By works, Enoch was taken up to heaven. By works, Abraham obeyed going to the place which he was to receive. But that is often the way that this this chapter is kind of flipped over to mean the exact opposite of what it explicitly says, right? By faith is how all of these people did these things. So it wasn't a matter of works. It was, it was based upon a conviction of things which they did not see, but they heard, so they weren't able to, to, to see this with their eyes, but they had what in Hebrew is called a, a lev shomea, which is what Solomon prayed for, uh, a listening heart. They had this lev shomea, a listening heart that was tuned to the frequency of God's word. And so as one of my professors like to put it, this is my, my favorite expression <laughs> from that I learned at seminary. To You pluck out your eyeballs and you put them in your ears. That's how you see the work of God. You pluck out your eyeballs, put them in your ears, and see then through your ears. In other words, you see the work of God. You see his promises by listening because your eyes are two liars embedded in your face. They will always deceive you. So you cannot see the work of God with your eyes, but you can certainly see it with your ears. So these people were living by the ears of faith. They were listening to all the things that God promised them. I mean, just to take the instance that you that you talked about, Rahab. Rahab had seen absolutely none of the work of God, but she had heard about it. She says to the spies, you know, I, I we have heard, not just I, but we've heard about Everything that God did for, in fact, she even knows the personal name of God. She says, Yahweh, we, we even, we heard what Yahweh did, your God did to the Egyptians and how he brought you to the Red Sea on so on and so forth. She like knows the salvation story, even though she, I doubt she'd ever really left the city of Jericho, right? I mean, the people didn't travel back then. She didn't hop on the Israel interstate and go up north or something. So they, she was there, but what what had happened is reports had come back. She had heard, and because of what she had heard, she believed. And so she lived by faith in what she had been told about God's activity on behalf of Israel. And it was no different for Abel, for Enoch, for Noah, for Isaac, for Jacob, on and on down the list. They all lived by faith in the word of God and not by their own you know, moral pedigree or their great spiritual accomplishments or anything. I mean, if you... If you know the biographies of these people, they are some messed up folks, just like we are. And they've got some, they got big piles of skeletons in their closet. But they, that's why it says, by faith, not by works, they did all of these things. Because it was by faith in God's word of promise that, uh, that he accomplished this. So this isn't like, sometimes called the hall of faith. That's uh, fine. I mean, it's the hall of it's hall of these people who live by faith, but it's not a hall of moral examples. I, I you know, we don't want to, you don't want to look to these people as, as models that we are to emulate in every single aspect. If we're going to emulate them, let's emulate their faith, live by faith, just as, just as they did. I think you've talked about that elsewhere too, about where's, where's drunk Noah in our flannel graph stories. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that that's, Similar, we we miss that uh, we see this anecdotal sort of paragraph of Noah's faith, and we miss the fact that it was remarkable faith because he had messed up really right after he he had so so to speak achieved what he had set out to achieve, which was uh, you know the preservation of of God's people, uh, and then he gets drunk and and makes a mess of everything, <laughs> but. Uh, we don't often think about that. We just think of the moral exemplary standard that we often <laughs> focus on. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, that what happens after Noah is basically Genesis three. Again, it's uh, a yeah. three part two. Mm. I mean, that, that, really, that's the way that Genesis is structured. So you have creation and then you have the fall. And then what the flood is, is basically a, a renewal of creation. 
That's why you have Adam, I mean, Adam, Noah with his little family. They're like the new Adam and Eve. And they have the animals. So the ark is like a little garden of Eden floating above the waves. Everything dries up. There's dry ground again. Remember Genesis 1, dry ground. And then they, they step out and uh, it's a new world. I mean, it's like it's the it's the first new creation. And and Noah and his family, they are the new embodiments of Adam and Eve. So there's this fresh start. But they're different than the first Adam and Eve in that they already they have this messed up nature already. And then what happens with Noah getting drunk and the, the nakedness and his son coming in and going out and gossiping, all that, just that whole terrible family disaster is nothing more than Genesis 3 again. So, yeah, I mean, it, we, we can talk about Adam's, Adam's fall and then we can talk about Noah's fall. So both of them are in the same boat, so to speak. And I, I just love that the fact, like you were saying, that these characters, uh, they live exactly how we live too, which is we have perhaps a more clear vision of of what God is trying to say to us, perhaps because we have the full revelation as we've already talked about, but we live in the same manner. We live, as Paul says, by faith, and we live exactly as they live, trusting and believing and putting our faith in the fact that the promises of God are true in Christ and they will be true for us in the, the 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 future that he has assured for us and promised that is coming about. Yeah, amen. I mean we're uh one of the one of the things I like about the uh the biblical narratives is that we see ourselves so clearly in those, right? We see our we see our weaknesses, our failures, but we also see the grace of God that just poured out nonstop upon these these people. And that's that same grace that we share. Uh you humanity has not changed. Uh we are from Genesis three onward, or I like to say from Genesis four, because I think Genesis four with with uh, Cain and Abel best exemplifies humanity at its core. Uh, that is, uh, I mean, if, I've often said Genesis four is the is world history. That's right there. It's it's a few short verses, and there you go. There's world history. You've got uh, people connected. You got brothers. Basically, we're all one family. We're all one human family. So we're all brothers and sisters. And what do you have? Well, you've got, you know, some who believe, some who don't. You got antagonism, and very often you have the shedding of blood. So it's a, it's world history right there. But then, not to stop there, what does God do after this? Well, He basically forgives Cain and protects him. So He shows mercy also, even to this first murderer. So just as He shows mercy to him, He'll so He continued to show mercy to to us as well because. To get it back to Hebrews, as Hebrews says, we have a, a word that speaks better than the blood of Abel. It speaks forgiveness to us in, in Jesus Christ. Hmm. That is such a, a wonderful way to really wrap up this conversation that we do have. Uh, the theme of this whole time has been better blood from a better atoning sacrifice, anyone that we could make and anyone that was made in all of those Old Testament rituals that were just types and shadows of the atonement that Jesus would make. And I think that that is the wonderful message of Hebrews, one which I pray to take to heart, why I pray to one day uh, expound uh, to my church. <laughs> but uh, is there any lasting words or impressions or I hate to use the idea of tips and tricks because those are weird, but any lasting things that you could perhaps give to readers or listeners as they are making their way through this, through this book? You know, it's a, it's, it's a fine little detail, but I'm going to, I'll bring it out because I think it's really kind of helped me. This is from, uh, let me find it here. This is from Hebrews chapter 10, uh, beginning at verse 19. One of my favorite sections it says, since therefore, uh, brothers, we have we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Of course, this is a this is taking what happened in, in the Old Testament worship at the tabernacle at the temple, and it is, is applying it to us, and that we now, as the priests of God, indeed as the high priests of God, we enter directly into the presence of the Father himself. We're not stuck in the courtyard. 
We're not stuck in the forecourt. We're not even stuck in the holy place. We go behind the veil, through the veil, through the flesh of Christ, right there into the, the holy of holies, into the inner sanctum. And there we encounter not a God who is angry with us. We don't encounter a God who is cold toward us, but we encounter a father who welcomes us, loves us, forgives us, and makes us his children. And we have confidence to do this, verse 19, that Greek word also means freedom of speech, which I just love. We have freedom of speech. We have, we have this ability to talk to our father because he is our father. He's not just some kind of all-powerful, all-majestic, generic God. He is all-powerful. He is all-majestic, but he's also our father. He's our Abba. And with free speech, with, a, with full assurance, we can draw near to him and talk to him because he's the kind of God who loved us so much that he was willing to send his own son to be this high priest sacrifice for us and for our salvation. Amen and amen. Jesus is better. Chad, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate your insights. They are always so uh, wonderfully uh, received. And I just pray that anyone who out there is listening would uh, take to heart uh, what we've discussed. But I pray that it's been a blessing. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you for the conversation. Well, that's it for the, today's episode of Ministry Minded. I appreciate you listening. If, uh, if you like what you just heard, be sure to subscribe onto the show uh, by going on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts and hitting subscribe. If you're feeling gracious, you can leave a review on one of those services. That would be helpful. Uh, thank you uh, to Chad for coming on the show and giving me his expertise. And thank you, as always, for listening and commenting and subscribing. I'll see you in the next episode. Blessings. Thank you.